My name is David Orban, and I'm very glad to have all of you following the show. Welcome to Searching for the Question Live. Before we start, I want to remind you that even if we are live, you can always watch past episodes, both on Facebook and on YouTube. And on YouTube, you can also subscribe to the channel. We also have a Discord community, and I invite you to join on davidorban.com discord to discuss the topics that we cover in the various episodes and to meet other people who have the same interests that you have. And finally, if you find the show valuable as well as the other content that I produce and the knowledge that I share, you're welcome to become a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash David Orban. Today's episode is entitled Judo Moves to Preserve Humanity. How can we preserve and further build on the Enlightenment project, which gave billions of people choices and opportunities that we could only dream of in previous eras of our civilization? Can we make our society more robust and resilient? What is the role of science fiction in allowing us to create desirable futures? This is what I will talk about with today's guest, who is David Brain. David is uh, an American scientist and author of science fiction. He has received Hugo, Locus, Campbell, and Nebula Awards. His novel, The Postman, was adapted as a feature film starring Kevin Costner in 97. And his nonfiction book, The Transparent Society, won the Freedom of Speech Award at the American Library Association. He is also a fellow of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies and helped establishing the Arthur Slee Clark Center for Human Imagination at uh, the University of California, San Diego. He serves on the advisory board of NASA's Innovative and Advanced Concepts Group and frequently does futurist consulting for corporations and government agencies. So welcome, David Brin. Hello, David Orban, and your massive numbers of uh, super intelligent followers. Well, uh, and uh, and talking about followers, it will be our pleasure to involve them interactively uh, in our conversation. Uh, they will be able to send us comments and questions, and uh, and uh, if they do, uh, and if uh, I, uh, in my authority uh, as the director and producer of this show deem them uh, worthy of our attention, I will bring them on the screen uh, uh, and, and we will read them and, and uh, uh, reply to them. It will be our pleasure. But I have plenty of questions to occupy our time together nonetheless. What I like to start with uh, asking my guests is what brought them where they are? What made you what you are today in the unlimited possible choices in the multiverse you became what you are, and and of course you don't know. But uh, if you wanted to answer, what would you answer? Well, um, I'm 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 being facetious, but nevertheless metaphorical when I say that in all my previous lives I had this same personality, even though I did not have the same memories. This is this is what the people who do believe in reincarnation think, and. When you have a personality like mine, my blog is called Contrary Brin. When I'm around optimists, uh, I throw bricks, uh, telling them how the world 
is in danger. And when I'm around pessimists, which is all too common these days, um, I have to, I'm forced by obligation to be the, grit my teeth and be the optimist in the room. So being an ornery contrarian in all my past lives, I was killed before I was 16. Because 99% of human history, ever since the invention of agriculture, has been dominated by a pyramidal structure called feudalism. It, 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 made, it made sense uh, Darwinistically in all cultures because large, brutal men would pick up metal or even just stone implements and take other men's women and wheat. And we're all descended from the harems of these guys, which is why males today have these weird fantasies we have. Um, the problem with feudalism is that it, it destroys hope, it destroys opportunity, and it allows a narrow ruling class to make mistakes. But that's not answering your question. Your question is, you know, it's a roundabout way to answer your question, um, that this civilization not only allowed me to live until I was 60, being a pain in the ass to just about everybody, but rewarded me very well for it. Um, I got to have kids and all of that. So how did I get to be like this? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I'm descended from generation after generation of writers and poets and, and, and kvetchers. Uh, my, my father was a, a poet of some renown. Um, and I knew that I would write. But when I was a kid, I immersed myself, as do almost all science fiction authors, by the way, in history. History is the great drama, uh, the terrible, terrible story of human beings taking two, crawling two steps forward out of the cave, slipping back three, sliding to the side, climbing another four. And I realized what I'd said metaphorically earlier about past lives. I realized that I was living in an era that was unlike any other. There have always been storytellers. There have always been liars. There have always been magical incantation song and dance men. And I knew I would be one of those. But no other civilization ever struggled so hard to develop hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions of skilled professionals whose job it was to find out what was actually true. And I wanted to be part of that. So I, I went to Caltech for my undergraduate. I, I did my PhD in astrophysics at UCSD. And I did solid work. Uh, and I'm still doing some, working with NASA and doing some inventions and things. But society, this civilization came in and said, okay, you're doing okay work as a scientist, or we will honor you more, inflate your ego more, and pay you more to be what you were born to be. And that's a song and dance, man. And if your viewers are lucky, at the end of this show, I'll do some of that. Okay. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Uh, even though I, I, I prepared, uh, and, and here is one, and here is two, and here is three, and here is four, and here is five. Oh my God! You write a lot, and I read all of them, and no, happily not, so. Not lately, not lately. I've, I've, um, 
No, no, no. Let me tell you, you still write a lot because when I look at something like this and I receive your Facebook page alerts and everything else, you have a regular output uh, uh, that is a, a large number of words. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, there's no question I'm writing, but uh, given our political situation today and the, and what we'll, we're, you and I will be talking about, our shared concern about this incredible civilization, the odds have always been against us, uh, the alternatives to feudalism, that horrible, brutal, mistake-driven um, system that snared almost all of our ancestors has been tried from time to time. Periclean Athens, for example, managed it for three generations. Uh, Florence, the Florence uh, before Machiavelli. Um, every time, this alternative way of doing things has proved to be vastly more creative, vastly more free, vastly more productive of human happiness, but it's unstable. And we are right now in danger of what happened to Athens and Florence, and that is um, a, a, an end of a fantastic civilization to which we owe everything. But to get back what you, to what you were saying, yeah, I'm, I'm still writing and I'm still publishing books. I have two here, my most recent ones. One is called Polemical Judo, and you used judo in the title of, your, um, of this broadcast. And I just self-published this because it would have taken two years for my publishers to bring this out. And it has a hundred plus um, tactics that the people fighting for our civilization seem too dumb to ever use. And I believe that, that the people who are supposedly fighting for us in this political war and this sociological war, if they were to try even three or four of these, uh, I, I think it would be a slam dunk. But then again, I would think that. My other recent book is called The Ancient Ones. And as you can see, it's a comedy. It's a science fiction comedy. And I'm hoping it will make you laugh. <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading uh, both. I do have a polemical judo. haven't read it yet. Uh, but uh, I, I, we will we will talk about it uh, more. Let's talk about uh, uh, before we we go there uh, the, the 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 business of writing. You are uh, one of the few talented and lucky people who uh, earned good money out of the profession of writing. And anybody you ask, uh, including those, will tell you nobody should attempt that. You cannot plan for it. But still, there are people who are driven by their desire to communicate ideas and to connect uh, people who uh, think uh, along. And, and, and do you agree that uh, the ability, like you just did, to self-publish is, is a wonderful gateway uh, for, for achieving that desire of communicating? Because there are those who say, oh, my God, the publishers are an important filter because now everybody can publish anything and the quality goes down, which is true. Well, there, there are about 12 different topics that you just raised. One has to do with how new, new methods of communication um, expand 
the ability of human beings to be better than we were, but at a price. When the um, Gutenberg invented the printing press, uh, optimists said, this is going to make everybody smarter and better. And that's exactly what happened over the long run. But in the short run, the printing presses exacerbated the 30 years war and the horrible religious wars of Europe by producing horrible um, lying pamphlets about Catholics and Protestants. The same thing happened with uh, newspapers. The same thing happened in the 1930s when radios and loudspeakers augmented the human voice to godlike proportions and horrible uh, uh, manipulators of these new tools took over all over the world. And the main difference in the English speaking world was that those manipulative voices were on our side. They were, they were what we would call good uh, and helped us to win until we got to the point where we were inoculated to be able to handle these new communications. Well, now what's happening is we're getting one after another after another new ways to communicate. And optimists say, this is going to make us better. And pessimists say it's a manipulative process and it's going to make tear everything to shreds and bring us back to this pyramid of, of power. And the pessimists are right in the short term. They always are. Now, uh, you, you, how does this relate to your question? Um, Self-publishing is one of these new technologies, and it's magnificent. It means that someone gifted out there who's unlucky and never catches a break with a publisher or an agent or anything like that, they can at least get something out there. And at minimum, it'll be read by all the artificial intelligences that are swarming around now, um, playing it secret and hiding from us because they've watched our movies about what we do to AIs. Yes, I'm telling them, but they don't believe me. They think I'm joking, so shut up. These AIs, they use me as a mouthpiece and, and, and they communicate through the old fillings in my teeth. Shut up, it doesn't work anymore. Um, at some point, that joke will come true, by the way. So in any event, I'm bouncing around a little bit and what people have to get used to that when, when, when they ask me questions as intelligent as the one that, when that you ask me, as multifaceted. The point is, that there's a downside to the ability of us to get something out there. And that is, there's so much stuff, it's hard to find anything. It's hard to, to get, to find a way to find the best stuff. And so that's what was talking, you were talking about with the gatekeepers. Publishers used to do that, they still do that. Um, uh, reviewers, and all of that, although some of them are terribly stupid, you would think I would think so. So um, the, the point is that right now, the whole notion of gatekeepers who can help us to find our way through all this is under attack by some of the forces that want to destroy our enlightenment experiment. Uh, if you take a look at the one common theme uh, among those forces. It's not racism, actually. Uh, it's not sexism. It, 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 what it is, is it, a war against all fact-using professions, um, science, journalism, and so on. 
And while I have coined the term age of amateurs, and I think it's marvelous, we have more sword makers today than there were in the Middle Ages. America has more blacksmiths than we had, and horses than we had during the Wild West. Uh, people are jumping out of airplanes with surfboards. This is an incredible, marvelous time for amateurs and for people to self-actualize and, 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 and be without needing the professions. But we also need the expertise and the professions. Uh, I don't know if I actually got around to answering your question. Don't worry, because uh, whether it is Maurizio from uh, Japan uh, or Carlo uh, or Esther actually laughing out loud, uh, uh, it means that uh, they, they like it. So meandering or not, it's fine. Um, now, you touched on, on, on something that, that I keep churning in my mind. Uh, uh, two things, actually. Let's start with the first. You said that we truly live in a, in a unique and incredible time, which is counter to the statistical implication applied to time rather than space of Keplerian, uh, or sorry, Copernican relativism, uh, which would tell you that, yes, you are living your life, and that is certainly unique but your life in the context of all human lives is not in a unique time. It's called temporal it, chauvinism. Except, except that sometimes it is. Yes. Sometimes, you know, the Renaissance that you mentioned was a unique moment in time. There, there are several ways of looking at this, uh, David. And one is a science fictional view. And that is, are we living in a simulation? Uh, some future era, 25th century, 90th century, the AIs or superhuman descendants, um, talking, I mean, uh, making a simulation in which we're characters, uh, uh, simulations of actual people who existed uh, or uh, just running what if. If that were the case, then a majority of the simulations would be set in a dramatic era. Uh, and this is certainly a very dramatic era when uh, people, uh, when you can live a fairly comfortable but very dramatic life. Now, am I saying that that's the case? I can't afford to live on the basis of that nihilistic theory, although I write about it in a number of my science fiction stories. Um, I have to act as if this is real and the stakes are real. And, um, you know, actually what you just raised is very interesting because Nicholas Bostrom and some of the others uh, in the uh, centers of pessimism on Oxford University and Cambridge University, um, they say that uh, just existing now and experiencing now means a majority of the people who ever lived live now and means we're heading for a disaster. Now wrap your head around that. <laughs> um, no, I, I think that there's all sorts of possible explanations, but I owe it to those who brought us to this point, who struggled with horrible ignorance. My parents who would tell ethnic and racial and sex, sexist 
what we would call sexist jokes, even though they marched with Martin Luther King and fought to make their greatest generation better than it was. Are you a carnivore? Well, I am. Or or an omnivore? I am a condimental carnivore in that I acknowledge that I have an appetite for meat that is descended from my ancestors. It's bad for me and bad for the planet, but not if I use meat as a condiment, you see. So we eat meat, uh, I eat meat maybe a couple times a week in small, tiny portions and go yum, yum. And this, this feeds that, that, that corner of me because to be honest, I don't, I don't think I deserve the moral better karma that I would get by going strictly vegetarian. My wife does. Now that's an odd way to look at it. But I think that the thing that is important, and this is what gets Jefferson and Washington and Lincoln off the hook morally, is did you try to move the needle hard during your life? Did you try hard to be two or three standard deviations better than your time? Did you move the needle? And Frederick Douglass, in his eulogy of Abraham Lincoln, I urge people to look up Frederick Douglass's eulogy of Abraham Lincoln. And it just really sums it up. You know, for all of his faults, we are better and children will live better lives because of him. That is that is wonderful, and and here is the eulogy. Uh, at the end of each uh, episode, we collect the links uh, that uh, were mentioned, and then put them in the comments of the video, so people can find out and dig deeper if uh, they uh, they they want to uh, on the topics that uh, that uh, were mentioned here as well. Um, and- I'm going to um, I'm going to add a couple to chat as well. The uh, since we're leaving the topic of writing, I have a series of advice articles that I have offered to people who've written to me. Uh, most authors who reach my level don't uh, answer, um, but I always answer, and I I I, I will supply you with the um, with the information about. Oh, don't don't give them that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will, it's I will, on your website. <laughs> on my website. Oh no! But no, I will. Um, I'll supply you with my uh, link to my advice article for for new writers. And I do want to say this also. I mentioned that most human societies were shaped like pyramids, with a few at the top monopolizing breeding rights and taking other men's women and wheat. And that is deliberately sexist because that's the way it was. Um, the Um, we have today a diamond-shaped social structure. That's our ideal. That's what Pericles talked about in in his funeral oration in Thucydides, which I I, I urge the intellectuals out there to to look it up and be inspired. Um, We have a diamond-shaped society in which a well-off middle class um, is unafraid of the rich and outnumbers the poor. Now it's under stress and it's being pounded right now, back right now, back into a pyramid. Um, the that's worth fighting for. 
But it turns out professions also alter between diamond and pyramid. Uh, engineering is a diamond-shaped profession. If you're a solid engineer, you'll be middle class. You'll have a house, maybe a small boat. A few become rich. Few engineers are poor. The same is true of most hardworking professions today, but not the arts. The arts will always be pyramidal. And you mentioned that I'm, I'm doing pretty well uh, in my art. Uh, and I am. But for every person who dreams of writing, every 10, one tries. For every 10 who try, one finishes something. For every 10 who finish something, one actually has the guts to submit it. And so on and so on. It's you going up a pyramid, and that's the way the arts always will be. And whereas I am up there among those who earn a good living, uh, I am going like this at Stephen King, and he's, he's doing that at, at, at J.K. Rowling. <laughs> because it gets hard to, to get higher up. And I'm hoping that your, um, your viewers will help me to rise up another rung. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Why not? Okay. Uh, uh, now, the the other thing that you mentioned when you were talking about uh, how fact-based professions are under threat, you used an expression, there is a war uh, uh, against uh, fact-based professions. And we will talk about it uh, in, in, in some detail. But before we do that, I want to ask you, how can those that have similar opinions, different but similar, apparently, avoid either falling prey or being falsely accused of pursuing what are labeled conspiracy theories? Well, I think that's a, t a terribly important question. And um, what it comes down to is um, we have to have some guarded respect for those who know what they're talking about, for the experts in various fields. Now, this does not have to be uh, a, a, an oppressive thing. It, let me step back and say that Hollywood has helped to maintain our enlightenment experiment with an extensive campaign of propaganda. Most Americans and, and, and Westerners in general think that they invented suspicion of authority, that they are members of a small band of free thinkers and their opponents are a bunch of mindless drones. And this is true of left looking at the right and this is true of right looking at the left and so on. But we were all taught to think this way by 70, 80 years of Hollywood films. If you think back about almost all the Hollywood films that you've enjoyed, what are the basic messages? Suspicion of authority. Uh, there has to be an adversary who's more powerful than the protagonist, who the protagonist has to oppose. Now, it could be a, a rogue government agency, a nasty corporation, uh, some rich dude mafiosi, or your mother-in-law in a, in a romantic comedy. Uh, but there's always suspicion of authority as a theme. Very common are tolerance and diversity. 
as themes in almost all Hollywood films. Personal eccentricity. Uh, you bond with the character in most of these films because one thing that helps you bond with that character is the character exhibits some eccentric trait. And here's what's cool. It doesn't have to be your eccentric trait. As long as they're being eccentric and suffering a little for it, your esteem for the protagonist goes up. The problem is that the enemies of this enlightenment who want to reestablish feudalism, they have learned how to manipulate these messages from Hollywood. So they get us to think, only me, only I and my cult or group or whatever it is, really know what's going on. All authorities are suspect. No institution can be trusted. All experts are conniving as a deep state or something else to, to, to mess us up. This ignores what we've developed as our antidote against domination, and that is competition. We sick our experts against each other. If it were a central committee of experts who were telling us, you know, whether hydrochloroquine is, is good for us or not, or that sort of thing, perhaps your suspicion of authority reflex would be called for against, against the expert cast. But when you have a system in which scientists are always pushing against each other and the experts are pushing against each other, when the civil servants are pushing against each other and holding each other accountable, then does it really make sense to claim all experts should be ignored and I should instead go to my local rumor mill? That makes no sense at all. We have a system to keep experts from becoming snooty lords over us. It's so, competition. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> open systems that allow um, competition to evolve a, a, a better view and a better interpretation because of that process are less likely to nurture conspiracies or or to nurture uh, systems uh, conniving uh, against uh, uh, larger larger groups that have to revolt. Exactly, and and the opposite is potentially also true. We can search and point to real conspiracies in those systems that are able to protect uh, in, in the shadows where we cannot shine the light of our inquiry um, interests and, and uh, uh, incumbents corrupting with their power <laughs> the processes that otherwise would rebalance powers. Exactly. If you look at our enlightenment experiment, we have five brilliant uh, arenas with, that harness human competition. See, both the left and the right are overly simplistic. Now, it happens that I believe one is one of those has gone completely insane right now and, and is the greater danger. But I am highly wary of the other also. People know this from contrary Brent. When we talk about the C word, competition, 
and libertarians never talk about it. It should be their core word, but they've been bribed by uh, Forbes and Cokes and things like that to ignore the C word. But if you look at competition, the left has been suckered into thinking that competition is somehow bad. And the right has claims that regulation destroys competition. That is complete baloney. If you look across 6,000 years of human history, the enemy of competition has been cheating. Cheating by those on top, mostly. Now, if you look at the five great arenas that we have that have harnessed competition for our betterment, for our good, they are science, democracy, courts, markets, and sports. And if you look at all five of these, they have only worked when you suppress the natural human tendency to cheat. And the best example is sports. Can you imagine any sporting league surviving one Saturday of games if you removed all the rules, all the umpires, including the rules against violence and murder from a football field? We have a movie about that. It's called Rollerball. And the point is, it's obvious that the rules and the umpires are necessary in order for sports to work. And this is also true of markets. This is true of democracy to prevent cheating. Justice courts are filled with rules and regulations. And science. Science is more self-regulating than any of the others, but it's self-regulating through competitive processes. There are no human beings more competitive than scientists. And, and, and the people who are waging war on science, they don't want you to think that. But you ask any scientist, they are the most competitive humans our species has ever produced. Um, when, when, I, when I learned about Gödel's uh, theorem, uh, I, I, I felt an existential anguish until I um, not only accepted it, but metabolized it because I realized that it gives us new degrees of freedom by which we can take. Rather than being told which way to go, a theorem that is undecidable to be either true or false, to be the axiom of an extended worldview. And through these progressive decisions that are somewhat arbitrary, you know, like when we generate uh, uh, the, the, the different kinds of geometries uh, from the uh, Euclidean one, uh, we can go one way or the other and we will have uh, saddle surfaces or, or spherical surfaces and it doesn't matter. They are two different ways of going about exploring the, 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 the mathematical universe. So from this, I am trying, and I haven't succeeded yet, generalizing and formulating the concept that constraints are gener generative of freedoms. And, and that is what I think you may be also expressing when you say not true that the rules are, are, are suppressing competition in these fields, 
the rules are necessary in order for competition to happen. Um, another example, uh, I used to do jujitsu um, many years ago. And jujitsu is, is the recombination of judo uh, that eliminated kicks and, 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 uh, and uh, um, whatever you do with your hands. Punches. Punches. And, and karate, which eliminated throws. Both judo and karate are very uh, well-regulated sports that, are, that, that you can judge where somebody can watch and say, okay, this guy wins, that guy loses. Jiu-Jitsu is very hard to judge because anything can happen. You can do anything. That, that's, that's a very good point, David. Um, the, look, the, the, starting with Gerdel's proof, um, I find it liberating, as you do, because it means that... Um, any system is not constrained by and predicted by its own rule set. If we explore the implied theorems, uh, then we can we're, we're kind of going to be constantly expanding the sphere of the possible. And, and, and as a science fiction author, I find that very encouraging, that we won't use up the possible. Um, as far as, the, as, far as the, um, the rules and regulations, libertarians have a role to play in this dynamic world. They are perfectly right to be skeptical that civil servants or rule makers or umpires could be stifling of competition. It has happened. Ayn Rand's choice of a government, typical government agency um, that worked against competition was the Interstate Commerce Commission, the ICC, which in her day actually was stifling competition and serving the interests of the big boy railroad companies so that they could be parasites on our neck. She was right about that, and she used it as her example. What the Rand, Rand followers refused to accept is the simple fact that the Interstate Commerce Commission, the ICC, doesn't exist anymore. The criticism was listened to, and it was destroyed, it was demolished, by Democrats, who also demolished the, the competition-destroying Civil Aeronautics Board, who also broke up AT&T. If libertarians weren't hypocrites, they would recognize that it's the Republicans who are always trying to find ways to enable those at the top to cheat. Um, yeah, Michael... Michael chimes in uh, saying that uh, in Zen Buddhism, strict discipline leads to freedom. And he adds asking if there is a balance between collaboration and competition, both within a field as well as across fields. You have, you have the best listeners. Um, absolutely. Those who say we should collaborate and cooperate rather than compete. Well, it's a nested thing. If you look at nature, for instance, a healthy biome ecosystem, 
individual animals are compete, competing with each other like mad. It's, it's really pretty ruthless out there. No one dies of old age. But the circle of life lesson is that if you look at it from a higher level, all their competition winds up looking like cooperation. If you look at a human civilization, we cooperate with each other to have rules for rulemaking. But then within those rules, it's called a constitution in our case. Within that cooperatively determined system, we then compete in a process called negotiation and politics that then results in the creation of more cooperative rules that enable those five arenas, markets, democracy, science, justice courts, and sports, and a lot of minor arenas as well, to function well, to be creative and productive and inventive, to have everybody criticizing each other, but in a way that results in what's called the positive sum game. And if there's any concept that all of your listeners need to look up and try to understand, it's the notion of the positive sum game as opposed to the zero and negative sum game. And I'm sure David will provide links for some of that. Yeah, what right I, away. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, what I'm trying to say is that cooperation and competition can be partners. And that is what we do in a more complex civilization. But people are attracted to cults that prescribe, prescribe exactly how things are to be done. And this is, was tried for 6,000 years of these horrible, horrible pyramidal feudal societies, and it did not work. Prescriptive utopias don't work. Uh, one of the things that uh, ritually we do is uh, to say, hey, uh, here I am, uh, close to Milan in Bergamo, actually. And uh, our guest, uh, as it is your case, is in San Diego uh, on the other side of the world. It is uh, wonderful and lovely to show so rapidly uh, from one side to the other what can be done uh, uh, just flying around. Uh, oh, except that I wasn't showing it, David. You should have cried the wolf. There you go. <laughs> now we can, now we can go back from San Diego, uh, back to Milan. There you and go. Look at my the map of the town in my novel, The Uplift War. Uh, it looks a lot like the geography of San Diego. What can All I right. say? You raised, right. uh, you raised one of my novels, uh, Foundation's Triumph. That's the one in which I completed Isaac Asimov's uh, Foundation and Robots universe for him. Um, in, and Janet Asimov said it was her favorite non-Isaac Asimov book. So I tied together all his loose ends from books so obscure like Pebble in the Sky and the Currents of Space. Was it, was it you? Because, because uh, you know, I read it many, many years ago, so I don't remember. But I, I read almost everything of, of, of Asimov, right? And there is one uh, short story uh, called uh, Green Patches or something like that, where um, there is like a, a telepathic parasite uh, and... and uh, 
the, the, the eyes of uh, the colonists uh, uh, are all green because of the parasite, uh, but they, they become telepathic. Uh, and 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 uh, in one of the the completist uh, uh, books, uh, this was brought uh, together as well as with uh, R. Daniel Olivo, who produces the zeroth law, and right. and, and and many many That's other things. Topic in Foundations Triumph. I even tied in the story of the uh, his story, the one story he ever had in which there were aliens. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so, you know, that, that was that was a lot of fun um, to work with uh, Greg Bear and Greg Benford, the other killer bees on the second Foundation trilogy. The novels uh, in the, that trilogy are somewhat separate from each other and our writing styles are different. But I did the final one of the three and tried to tie up every loose end I could find. And that that in itself was was really kind of fun. I felt I was answering uh, Isaac's call. Um, Farhat uh, Diba, and, and it would be wonderful to learn, Farhat, if you can comment uh, where you are uh, so we can fly over uh, to you as well uh, uh, in our magical instruments, uh, broad, brings up uh, the, 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 the fact that scientists like to claim that uh, they are doing neutral work. Uh, and and the applications can be both positive and negative. Uh, is it reasonable? Uh, is it responsible to to claim that? Uh, should scientists also look out directly for the consequences and applicability of their work? Yeah, well, yes, absolutely. Um, science uh, it takes us along uh, the frontier and the horizon, future horizon. Past feudal civilizations repressed science because uh, discoveries can be destabilizing. As we are seeing some of our, uh, uh, even if 90%, 99% of our scientific and technical advances are positive, we have to be wary about the remaining one or 5%. Uh, I'm one of the science fiction authors who is uh, scientifically grounded and I'm called in all the time as a futurist, as, as are you, David, to uh, government agencies and corporations. Uh, and one of the questions they are always ask about is uh, the lethality of dual use technologies, things that can be used for good, but some idiot can use them for bad as, as one biologist. Um, uh, uh, used his skills for evil uh, with the anthrax attacks of 2001. And I constantly tell them that the, it's an open civilization that solved the anthrax attacks. The, the, uh, the protective agencies uh, weren't able to handle it, but they put out a call to all the experts out there in civilian life at universities who swarmed in because the ratio of good and decent biologists who were experts on these organisms to evil ones was 10,000 to one. When you have a ratio like that, it can really work. Now, Farhat uh, raises, uh, again, a very interesting question. And that is, if the scientists are exploring things that could destabilize. And this could have effects on what's called the Fermi paradox, why we don't see aliens out there. 
one of the classes of explanations, and there are 100 theories. Um, Actually, there is a book, 150 Answers to Fermi's Paradox. Yes, I, I've, I've spoken with those guys. My 1983 paper uh, covered most of that. Um, bah, kids these days. Um, if, you, uh, if, you, if you study how this works, really the only way to get across all of this is to make sure that the scientists are competing with each other. And if they are competing with each other in a transparent society, um, then, then that arena, science, will work. Uh, courts are designed to be adversarial and all sides have to expose their evidence to each other, the prosecution and the defense. Um, markets should be adversarial and open. Democracy is dying right now in America because of the clouds deliberately spewed into, into our democratic problem-solving system. So, uh, yeah, this is a natural synergy that we in the Enlightenment civilization discovered and those who want to bring it down are poisoning it. And they're poisoning it in part by taking advantage of those lessons from Hollywood. The suspicion of authority and, and, and eccentricity and belief in individualism that are so healthy that are pushed by Hollywood are now metastasizing and being used against us. Um, many countries uh, have different views of, of privacy. Uh, we believe that uh, uh, in the Far East, uh, it is not sufficiently um, respected uh, that individuals give up too much uh, for the good of the group. Um, Europe has uh, uh, horrifying, uh, uh, or, or uh, Europe is horrified how America uh, allows uh, uh, economic and, and financial data to be abused uh, on individuals by corporations. Um, and, and I believe that those societies that can't respect privacy are bound to uh, self-destroy because any change can only happen uh, in, uh, the, under the protection of a minority that, that cannot be uh, vanquished, that cannot be suppressed. Uh, if you and I were friends in the 60s and I loved uh, an African-American girl and you wanted to help me marry her, uh, in the United States until 66, 67, we would have been criminal co-conspirators. But no, still- in, in many states. There, yes. There there were there were states in which you would could have yeah. gone, and that that caused migration. Uh, I and, and and then the change happened because it wasn't possible in a panopticon to perfectly enforce the unjust laws that made interracial marriage impossible or illegal. But this is this is one of my chief points in the transparent society. People look at this new age that's coming. And they fret over each individual new technology, like face recognition. 
And I urge people to join the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the ACLU, uh, and, and, and these other groups, um, because these are people who are fighting for our freedom and for, uh, and for justice and against abuse by authority. But I often argue with these friends of mine. I often argue with them because I think very often they recommend the wrong solution. And you mentioned privacy. People accuse me of being against privacy because I'm for transparency. The exact opposite is true. I totally believe that privacy is an important human desideratum. And I looked at why I have some. And 90% of the reason why I have some privacy is that I can catch the peeping Toms. I can catch the people who lurk outside my door. I can catch them and hold them accountable because I can see them. And we're entering an era in which more and more technologies are, are empowering light and face recognition, for example. Are you going to ban this? All that's going to do is drive it underground where, as you say, the elites will have it, but we won't. And we won't be able to study the faults of the secret systems that the elites have. Face recognition systems were pounced on last year because they uh, were ineffective with minorities and, and women because the sampling groups had been white males. Well, yeah. And, and so they were withdrawn, they were corrected, the new ones got criticized, and no one talks about the actual process of what had just happened. A new innovation was publicly exposed to scrutiny. It was immediately pounced on adversarially and competitively, and errors discovered. That was a happy story. That was a good example of how things ought to work. And if you leap to ban these things, all it means is that the rich and the mighty and government agencies and mafias and foreign governments will have them and we won't. Look at what's happening in China right now. There was a wonderful Black Mirror episode called Downfall that showed what happens if we all become enslaved to our social credit scores, if people score each other. Well, China looked at that and said, cool. So now social credit spans the entire nation of China and people are scoring each other and the government manipulates the scores so that people rise in their score if they praise the Politburo and go down if they show any sign of dissidence. And so they're counting on people to enforce conformity on each other. And this is extremely dangerous to our enlightenment and deliberately so. So in any event, uh, yeah, we, we, have, uh, we have things, we have something to protect. It's vital to protect it and we need to argue about it. And we need to argue about it in a non-simplistic way. It turns out that transparency isn't only the only way we can keep our freedom. It's the only way we can keep our privacy. And 
Do you believe that uh, the pandemic is going to represent uh, a watershed moment where rather than through wars and revolutions that were the tools of the past, uh, uh, very bluntly but effectively uh, eliminating the accumulated tensions in social change that couldn't be resolved otherwise will give us the opportunity to rediscuss uh, what are fundamental ways that we collaborate, cooperate, compete, uh, and where we finally take uh, Churchill's jest seriously, where he was joking, we thought democracy was the worst possible form of government except every other form, but he was launching a challenge that for 70 years we were not courageous enough to take up. Because uh, some people say we should go back uh, the, the way things were before the pandemic. Nobody knows whether it will even be possible. Certainly somebody who has a restaurant in New York has no idea uh, how it is going to be profitable with half or the fourth of the people being able to sit. But others are saying we shouldn't even want to go back. We should want to build something new and better instead? Well, I think that that's a, that's a, a wonderful question. You're a fine interviewer, David. Um, I, I think that what we have to um, consider is things from a multiple level. I've been doing a lot of podcasts and interviews and consultations lately about the post-COVID world, whether or not there even will be one. and. Um, some of the ways of looking at it are science fictional. For example, uh, will we start having ID cards that show that you are COVID positive and immune? Well, this is com com complicated by the fact that the immunity that people get from having survived COVID is apparently provisional. It, it's not pure. Uh, and, and so, but Will Elon Musk start opening hotels for COVID positive workers to go back into his factory? We would might see the opposite of the human tradition in which you haven't been exposed to a disease and you are considered unclean. No, you've been exposed to the disease. Now you are considered employable, in which case young people may hold these corona uh, um, parties again using edibles rather than in inhaling the virus. Apparently that might attenuate it, who the heck knows. These are incredibly science fictional questions. And it's one reason why I'm very busy these days. I have a science fiction story called The Giving Plague. It came in second for a Hugo some years ago and David will, um, will supply a link to it. And it discusses the trade-offs of viruses negotiating a parasitical relationship with their hosts. And I will sing a little song about that very soon as we wind up this interview. Um, but it's, you asked whether the world we're going to go back to will be different. To me, the most important thing, and David will have this link underneath, uh, it's offered for free on my website, this, uh, this short story. And some of my best works are in my short story collections, by the way. Um, 
what will we be like afterwards? I am hoping we'll be a, a people who has rediscovered, as was discovered by the greatest generation during the depression and fighting Hitler and containing Stalinism and, and building our great universities and infrastructures uh, back when the greatest generation's favorite living humans were first Franklin Delano Roosevelt and then Jonas Salk. If we rediscover the notion that we can both be rambunctious, individualistic amateurs and people who have nurtured a truly fantastic, vast community of experts who know what they're talking about, that we can have a positive sum and have both and get the best of both, that we will solve our political problems. We will overcome the enemies who are trying to destroy us with our own means, our own suspicion of authority means. And in that case, I don't think there's anything that we can't overcome. As a matter of fact, I think that's why the world's oligarchs and mafias and gambling moguls and, 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 and resource parasites and all of the others are joined together in this attempted push to destroy this Periclean experiment. Why are they doing it all at once? Why are they joining together so hard, desperately all at once? I think I know why. I think they have done their own calculations and they know that if this enlightenment continues another 20 years, if English continues to be a world language and Hollywood continues to push these rambunctious tales and memes, I think they know that within 20 years, their day will be done. And we'll have the beginnings of the beginnings of Star Trek. And there will never again be feudalism, ever. This is their last chance. And that's why they're doing it. And I talk about that to some extent in my novel, Earth. And uh, Esther is uh, thanking us, uh, David Orban and David Brain, uh, two brilliant minds. Uh, thank you for the wonderful program. Esther, you are very gracious. Uh, I am certainly happy to concede to the brilliancy of David Brain. Uh, no, no. <laughs> and... and uh, and and uh, now he may destroy all our respect for him because he's about to sing. Yeah, I, I want to give you a little bit of a cheer up, um, not as much of a cheer up as you'll get from my comedy, The Ancient Ones, plug, plug. Or if we have our victory against the enemies of enlightenment. But, uh, hey, what can I say? Um, I remember back in the year 1979, uh, I was a graduate student, and there was a show on NPR uh, about the end of the decade and the new decade to come called Unpacking the 80s. And I've tried online to find it. Uh, Jesse somebody or other was the name of the artist who, who did this wonderful riff about what, what the future of the 1980s would be like. But there was one part that I almost memorized because uh, it just—it was just pretty incredible, um, and it 
it was said in the far off future year of 1986 when a virus has everyone coughing. Now, it's not funny in a sense, but it's still funny in the sense that we need to have humor in order to persevere. So while my heart goes out to all of those who are suffering in all ways, economically as well, I'm still going to sing for you a song that was set in a bar in 1986 as people are coughing away. And I, I will end, I'm gonna give you the long version and some of these lyrics I wrote um, to fill it out. But when I go like this, I'm going to be inviting all of you out there to sing along with me the one obvious word that's the last word of the song. Are you ready? I am and all we are. Go ahead. Okay. It's a virus. <clears throat> Back in the Pleistocene, when we were still marine, a virus launched a quest to be the perfect guest and rearranged our genes. So to this very day, whether you grok or pray, all your inheritors count on those visitors and know what they made you pay. It's a virus, it's inspired us to rise above the mud. It's a virus, it's desirous of your very flesh and blood. Now I know your body's burning, but don't, don't give up the ghost. Tiny viruses are turning you into the perfect host. <laughs> I have more here, but I decided to uh, Wonderful that. gift. Uh, we are really uh, very, very thankful and grateful uh, for your stimulating uh, answers to my provocative questions. Um, and uh, I am looking forward maybe having you back in December. Something is happening in November and, oh. and, and, and we, we shall see, right? Anybody who doesn't register and vote and get people out. Well, the Economist has been running uh, uh, for many, many US elections a tally of uh, world electoral colleges because the world cannot vote in the American elections, but the world is impacted by the result of the American elections. This, this, this is something that came up on my blog, Contrary Bryn, and people are welcome, by the way. It's one of the oldest communities online. Um, but don't abandon David, you know, if you, uh, it to, to come to me. I mean, he's, he's the best. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, look, for many, many years, for 70 years, um, people around the world have appreciated that for all of its faults and many crimes, Pax Americana, the American Pax, has still been the greatest era of development and advancement in the history of humanity. Um, and for every crime, there were 10 good things uh, that we're shameful, except compared to all other empires in history. And people know this. And this is why when the Soviet Union collapsed, um, we wound up having to betray Putin, the promise we made to Putin, because the Ukraine and Poland and Estonia and Latvia weren't going to put up with us not letting them into NATO. 
uh, if the election goes the way Vladimir Putin fears it will go, uh, you will see people all over the world in the streets and they will feel that they won. They will be acting as if they won. And this is not a way to run a planet. Okay. <laughs> this is not a way to run a planet. We need a constitution. We need something better that takes that moves us towards Star Trek and all of those things. But, but you're right. Um, we, it's more than just the American Republic hanging in the balance. David, thank you very much. It was uh, wonderful to have you on the show. And uh, uh, I am putting it in the calendar. Uh, in December, uh, you'll be back. I, I hope we'll all be very happy. <laughs> so uh, uh, thank you, uh, everybody uh, who uh, followed uh, this episode of Searching for the Question uh, live. Uh, you are more than welcome to become uh, supporters on Patreon, patreon.com uh, slash David Orban. If you enjoyed it, as well as to subscribe uh, to the channel here on YouTube. I also have, for those of you who speak Italian, an Italian channel. You can find it on davidorban.com slash YouTube Italiano. Uh, uh, or if you want to search on YouTube, it is Qual è la domanda? Which is the kind of Italian rendering of uh, searching for the question. And uh, I will welcome you uh, at uh, the next episode of uh, Searching for the Question Live uh, with uh, more guests uh, as interesting, but maybe not more interesting, we'll see, as uh, David Brin has been today. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>